Well, amen. That was good, wasn't it? Anyone feel a little lighter now? Isn't it good to know we don't have to do it on our own? In our own strength, there is one who is greater. It's good news. Wasn't it wonderful seeing all those kids up the front, bopping around? I think we should encourage that. What do you think? Good. Even if it means we have to do a bit of swimming. We can tolerate that, can't we? Okay, are you sitting comfortably? Good. Then I shall begin. Uh, 1 John 5, verse 4 says, and we've done this for a few weeks now, so you probably can quote this off by heart, but it says, everyone, say everyone. everyone. Born of God, say born of God. So that means me. And you. And even you. Thank you. Overcomes the world. Say overcomes the world. Now say it like you mean it. Overcomes the world. I feel the spirit of my brother coming upon me for a minute. I might get to preaching. Everyone born of God overcomes the world. Isn't that good news? This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. There's the key right there. Well, the point of that verse, as we've been looking at in the last few weeks, is that victory is our destiny. We are now overcomers by nature because we are born of God. That we have been given the keys. We've been given the tools. That we have the greater one, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help us, the Holy Spirit, living within us. And yet, (laughs) we often blow it. We find ourselves living under the circumstances. We find ourselves beaten up by the world. We find ourselves, if we're honest, feeling more like failures than conquerors. Why is that? I'm glad you asked. That's the reason for the series, really. And the thoughts we've had so far, first of all, reason number one that we we feel like that is that we never actually catch this new expectation. You know, many of us come into our Christian lives wounded and no one actually tells us the things are supposed to change. And they don't tell us how to change those things. And so the expectation remains not overcoming, but overcome. Not over the circumstances, but under the circumstances. You know, we understand that that Christ died for our heaven, but not that he died for our earth. John 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And he's talking about life in the here and now. My early church experience actually was in a Baptist church. You know, and they were great at taking us to the cross. You know, we had wonderful Easter services, great baptisms, great at taking us to the cross, but no advice really as what to do beyond that. How do we live this thing out? How do we become overcomers? We never catch this new expectation. The second reason we looked at last week is it's so easy, isn't it, to get caught up in the firestorm. We get caught up in the firestorm, we can struggle to see actually what's beyond that, what's behind that. It's easy to be pounded by those difficult circumstances, to be suffocated by those raw emotions, to get caught up in the moment. 
And if we do that, we tend to fail to see that bigger picture, that wider view, God's perspective, if you like. Last week, we looked at the story of David and Goliath and, and said, what was it that set David apart? See, it's easy to live like Saul's army. All you can see is right in front of your nose. He's big, he's scary, he's intimidating. Or can we live like David who just saw things completely differently? He knew who he was. He knew who God was. He knew who and what he was fighting for. He, he knew what was at stake. He knew above all that it was God's battle and that he picked the winning side. The strap line last week, Christ in you and you in Christ makes you an overcomer. The third reason I, I think we often find ourselves feeling like failures under the circumstances, overcome by the world, is that we tend to just blow it in the moment. You know, we tend to overreact or lash out or say things we regret, ignore God maybe, we forget those good biblical principles that we've been taught. So easy to respond to fleshly emotions rather than spiritual wisdom. And if we do that, guess what? We lose. We mess up. We're beaten up. We take a step back. And the danger is if we do that over and over again, we live like losers. And the message is we're not supposed to live like losers. We're supposed to live like overcomers. So, that's what we're going to delve into today. The big idea for today, you can see it in the title there, is, is overcomers resist now to win later. They resist now to win later. You know, if, if only we could get a grip. If only we could resist that temptation to overreact to say something that we regret, to make that hasty decision. If we could recognize that there's a greater win lying further down the road, if we, we recognize that actually God's way does work, that wisdom actually often waits, that there is a delay time between sowing seed and reaping harvest, that there is tremendous power in patience, in waiting, in, in delaying gratification. That if we can resist now, then there's a bigger win later. The trouble is there's a, there's a cultural counter-challenge to that. Now, I'll be honest with you, my kids are 21st century kids. They're subject to the same schooling, to the same culture, they watch the same movies to a degree, they're subject to the same pressures. In essence, they're no different to any other kid in the United Kingdom. Put bluntly, they expect to get their own way and they expect to get it now. And if they don't, guess what? The full range of tantrums and emotional manipulations. My kids are very good at it and I didn't teach them how, as far as I know. You know, we, we call it spoiled, don't we? We call it entitlement. You know, I need, I deserve, I should have it, and I should have it now. 
Yesterday we went down to Reading, watched London Irish versus Bath. Toby, bless him, was told he couldn't take his wallet because there was 23p in it. Ollie had 4.98, but he so desperately wanted to go to the merchandise shop and buy a London Irish shirt, which would have retailed for £35. But he only got £4.98, and then the shop was shut. But boy, we never heard the end of it. I want it. I want it now. In fact, I want it yesterday already. The iPad was open this morning. The online shop was there. Daddy, if only we could press play. And society has trained us that if it's worth having, it's worth having now, and we shouldn't be forced to wait. A drum that, that culture is banging relentlessly, repeatedly. Mantras like this, if it feels good, do it. Live for the moment. Because you're worth it, ladies. L'Oreal. It's my life. I can do with it as I want. Maybe your teenager told you that. We live in an instant world, don't we? An immediate world. A couple of weeks ago, I bought my, my son, Ollie, an acoustic guitar because I was fed up with him borrowing mine. And one Sunday morning, I needed to play mine and he needed to play his at the same time. It wasn't going to work. And so I bought him a second-hand guitar, um, actually from a, a shop called Guitar Guitar. Um, and actually, the guitar was in Glasgow. I hadn't seen it. It was second-hand. It was what I wanted. The price was good. And I ordered it. Do you know what? But, but between me ordering it and it arriving in my house from Glasgow, 23 hours. I just thought that was amazing. You know, we live in the world of Amazon shopping where you press buy now and it's practically here before you blink. The era of microwave cooking, fast food and drive through And these things have produced a universal lust for now. If our iPhone takes more than five seconds to download a site, we, we get impatient, we complain how pathetic our phone is, or we just go to another site. And I don't even get me started on some of the extraordinary road rage, road rage episodes that we witness all over the sake of a three-second advantage. And there's a huge danger that there's an unspoken expectation, unspoken assumption that I should have it, I deserve it, I need it now. And that produces, that leads to an impulsiveness, it leads to an impatience, Ultimately, it leads to a selfishness, what we would call a fleshliness. And going beyond that, it's so easy to live life reacting to impulses, isn't it? Making decisions as only this specific now moment actually matters. That it's the immediate that counts. Again, why should I ever be forced to wait? Why should I ever save up or have to plan for something? As I've hinted already, this, this principle is a major challenge to the modern parent. The question is, how do we teach delayed gratification? How do we teach sacrifice? Here's the line. Instead of getting something that you want today, think how much better it would be to get something you really, really want tomorrow. My kids, they don't get that. They would have emptied out the 23p. They'd have emptied out the £4.98 just because they could. I don't know if it represents freedom or I don't know what it represents. 
I remember once we were in a, a Nike store, I think it was, and, and you might have guessed there were quite a few balls in the house. They, they saw this Barcelona football and they wanted it. It was 15 pounds for Barcelona. It was lovely. I mean, you know, the blue and the tick and all that kind of lovely football. I said, you know what's going to happen to that football, don't you, folks? You're going to buy it. You're going to spend, I mean, that would have been, I'm tough, three months' pocket money to buy a football. Yes, we're going to do it, Daddy. Blow the whole lot. One football. Guess what? Home. How many minutes do you think it was before it went over the fence and was gone? That was the only day I ever saw that football. It was gone. They wonder why my children, their wallets are always empty. One of my favorite speakers, Craig Rochelle, talks about a challenge that he lays before his children in order to try and teach this principle. Actually, there's huge benefit in delaying gratification. What he does, he waits until his kids are five. He's, he's got six kids, so he's had some practice of this. And he takes a, I'll anglicize the story, he takes a, what, a chocolate hobnob? Sorry to mention food, you know, just for lunch. Oreos was the, was the, was the American version. A ch big chocolate biscuit, puts it on front of the table, in front of his kid, and says, oh, doesn't that look good? And the hand goes out. And he grabs the hand and says, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can have that biscuit now, or if you can wait for one hour, you can have three biscuits. I've got them in the cupboard. In one hour, two more biscuits go on the pile, and you can have those if you wait. Now, that's really tough when you're five. I mean, it's pretty tough, if I'm honest, when you're 45. But pretty, imagine... And he said that his, his, his kids started to figure this out. He said, one of them was a natural. He said, great, Dad, let's go and play football for an hour and come back and eat those three cookies. Yeah. Better still, the next one was a business negotiator. He said, okay, I hear your offer. How about we wait two hours and there are five cookies? <laughs> Unfortunately, most of us are not good at waiting for our cookies. And only afterwards do we realize the cost of the decision that we've just made. That actually, we've settled for far less than God wanted us to have. This, this principle, although it is getting worse, I mean, it amazes me how it's almost as though children come pre-programmed like this. They are being really, really crushed and pressed by culture into this box. This is not a new problem. And in fact, the Bible is loaded with stories of people who failed to realize the long-term consequences of their short-term decisions. Let's look at a couple of examples. Think about, think about Moses. Remember Moses' story? He saw a couple of Hebrew slaves being mistreated. He got so angry that he engaged in a fight with the slave driver and killed him there and then with his bare hands. He just couldn't control, contain that firestorm. You know, that one single momentary action cost him 40 years in pressing into his destiny. One moment cost him 40 years. Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son wanted his financial inheritance yesterday. So he demanded it, his father gave it to him. But in doing so, think what he jeopardized. He jeopardized his family relationships. I mean, he was saying, essentially, Father, I... I wish you were dead, I want you were dead, but you're hanging around, it's a pain in the neck, give me the money now. I mean, that's not good for family relations, is it? 
as we discover when he comes home and we see how the big brother reacts. You know, he's, he was jeopardizing his place in society, his destiny, and ultimately his real inheritance. And if you go in and you read the text that story, you can find out that when he comes back, his father actually accepts him back, and then he gives him the real inheritance. The real inheritance was the cloak and the ring and the sandals, you know, the authority, the privilege, and so on. One of my favorites is the story of Abraham. You know, Abraham means the father of many nations. He was promised that he would be the father of many nations. The trouble was, he was old, his wife was barren, and they had no children. So what did they do? Between receiving the initial prophecy and the fulfillment of the promise, he got a little antsy, didn't he? And he saw his wife getting older and older. He saw his dreams slipping away. What did he do? He jumped into bed with his slave girl. And he gave birth to Ishmael, the son of the flesh. You know, and in time, God came through with the promise. The promise was called Isaac. But the consequences of the struggle that still goes on between Ishmael and Isaac, between the two family lines, between the two religions that they spawn. That struggle, the, the consequence of that is still being felt today, hundreds, thousands of years later. And Ishmael forever represents what flesh can produce. The results of impatience, of a lack of trust, of man's own alternative efforts. Isaac represents what the spirit can produce. What happens if we wait and if we trust, and if we stand on God's promises, if we allow God to provide supernaturally as he's promised to do. All of those, for me, are compelling examples of, of what would happen if we were to resist now. Maybe we would win later. The most graphic biblical example, probably the best one, is the story of Esau and Jacob. You know that story? Esau, they're twins. Esau is the older, and although he is, what, two minutes, maybe that's pushing it a bit, ladies, ten minutes older than Jacob, he's the firstborn. He's going to have much bigger inheritance. He's going to have the family name. He's going to have the estate. He's going to be the one that everyone remembers, Esau, Esau. And then there's Jacob. Jacob's the clever one. And in Genesis 5, 29, Read this. One day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness, he'd been hunting, exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. Jacob's a quick thinker. All right, he replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now. Here's the key word. And in this extraordinary story, the Lisa shaking her head. Esau traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. And as I said, this birthright was a big, big deal. In essence, what we see here is, is Esau being a big baby, being a drama queen, being an entitled brat, really. But what he did is he traded the ultimate for the immediate. 
And the kicker, if you think about it, is all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, how is God described? God is described as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What should it have been? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Esau. His name would have been there, spoken by generations to come. What an honor, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And he blew it. He traded the ultimate for the immediate. And then we'd say, who in the world would be as stupid, do something as stupid as trade their birthmark in for a bowl of stew? And the answer is actually, we are tempted to do that every single day. Every time we allow our fleshly desires to trump our better senses. God's principles. Every time we allow those fleshly senses to override the God prod. I had to get the word God prod in today. There it is. Whether it's hunger, as it was for Esau, whether it's anger, whether it's impatience, frustration, whether it's lust, whether it's doubt or fear, it's so easy for us to trade long-term blessings that come later for quick fix, lower things that you can have right now. And we all know people whose lives have been blighted, even ruined by unchecked, untamed, raw desires. Find themselves buried under a pile of debt because they couldn't resist. They find themselves in a teen pregnancy situation because they couldn't resist now. They find themselves suffering under the consequences of a drunk driving accident because they couldn't say no. Or they find themselves addicted to drugs or pornography or fill in the gap. In other words, they blow it in a moment or blow it in a series of moments. Paul addressed this in Galatians 5. Galatians 5.16 says, So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us, us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. You see, the world, go back to 1 John 5, Verse 4, everyone born of God overcomes the world. The world is trying to drive you to flesh. It's trying to drive you to instant, to immediate, to quick, to it's yours, you deserve it, you deserve it now. Because you want it, because you deserve it, because you are entitled. But, at what cost? What are we missing out on? If we trade the immediate, we trade it for the the ultimate. And the ultimate is the godly, the holy, the kingdom, the real contentment, the real peace, the genuine joy, the supernatural harvest, the abundance of life. The danger is that we trade the ultimate for the immediate. And again, Bring it back in the, the, the big picture. The big idea is that the overcomer resists now for a bigger win later. And maybe we need to redefine in our lives what the win is. That immediate flesh-relieving win isn't the real win. 
It's not winning that argument. That's not the real win. The real winning is, win is gaining respect. It's preserving love. It's nurturing and encouraging. The real win is not more stuff. The real win is financial freedom. The real win is not necessarily that deal. It's your integrity. It's not self-justification. It's peace with God. Why is it that Jesus teaches us to turn the other cheek? The answer is because getting the next smack in is not the real win. The real prize is our character and integrity. It's our walk with the Lord, the intimacy of our relationship with Him. It's souls one for the kingdom. It's God's ability to work good in your circumstances. The real win is the peace and joy that we have when we walk with Him consistently and do it His way. And yet, it's so difficult when you know it's going to hurt. Still thinking you're going to turn the other cheek one. It's difficult when your immediate action is not going to give you what you want right now. In fact, it may be difficult for the next five minutes. Maybe even the next two weeks. Jesus did it. Think of Hebrews 12 verse 2. When it talks about how Jesus followed the road to the prize. He despised, despised the shame. He knew he was going to be beaten. He knew he was going to be mocked. He knew he was going to be humiliated. He knew it was going to hurt. But he saw the prize. And the prize was his victory and our souls. So Jesus was able to resist now for a much, 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 much bigger win later. What I want to do this morning is I want to apply this specifically in the last few minutes to three or four different scenarios, situations. And the first one I want to apply it to is everyone's favorite topic, finances. Say, yay. Question is, can you suppress the urge to buy, buy, spend, spend, that I need bigger, I need better, I need faster, I need newer, I need, I deserve, I want the latest. Can you stick to the very simple principle that says spend less than you make? Pretty simple, really. Can you resist the urge to credit crunch? the debt monster, the claws of compound interest. And I don't know about you, I have frequent mailings with people saying, good news, you qualify for a £10,000 loan and think what you could do with it. i tell you what to do with it. Tear it up, put it in recycling. The danger, of course, is that the instant, the immediate, this entitled mentality creates unrealistic expectations that eventually will jeopardize our financial freedom. I heard someone put it like this this week. Why do we need the latest iPhone upgrade? What's wrong with the one in your pocket? Why do you need a brand new car? Why do students feel, I didn't write this by the way, why do students feel that they need a Mediterranean holiday every summer? Why do young newlyweds feel they deserve to live in a home like their parents rather than work their way up the ladder like their parents did? Here's a line that I've never forgotten 
spoken by a man by the name of Dave Ramsey. You can Google him. Ramsey with an E. He says, if you will live like no one else, one day you will live like no one else. And now it's quite profound if you think about it. In our finances, there are two views that we need. The first one is the long-term view. I suspect, if you're anything like me, this one tends to get crowded out by the short-term view. Ooh, I could have that right now. I can't afford it, but look, 0% down. Don't have to pay anything for two years. Ooh, I can have that. There's that short-term view that is loud and strong, but actually there's a longer-term view. And the longer-term view is, what if I stay out of debt? What if I wait till I actually can afford it and then pay cash? What if instead of filling my life with liabilities, I actually buy assets? What about sound financial planning rather than consumerism gone mad? And if we want the longer win, which is the financial freedom, that if I will live like no one else now, if I will turn down the temptation to have the newer, the bigger, the better to compete with the person next door because they've just got one, if I can resist this, then there's a much bigger win down the road. If I will live like no one else now, one day I might well be able to live like no one else. So we need to have that long-term view. The second view that we need to have that I think tends to get crowded out is the eternal view. Am I sowing into my heavenly account or am I filling my earthly boots? Am I actually honouring God with my finances? God asks for the tithe. God asks for the first fruits. Here's a little snapshot for you. Am I sowing my seed or am I eating it? What happens if you eat your seed? No harvest. Hungry. What happens if you sow your seed? What happens if you wait? What happens if you give? What happens if you invest? It grows and produces a harvest. And again, there's a real win in here. The real win is not the stuff. It's not the shiny, bright, new. The real win is long-term. It's God-honoring. It's biblical stewardship of finances. So in terms of finances, that's what I'd say to you this morning. Teenagers, what would I say to you? Well, what is the, what is the world saying to you? The world's saying, why, why, should, why should you save yourself for marriage? No one else does. Culture tells you you're a loser if you do. Surely you test drive a new car, don't you? And I know that teenagers are under tremendous pressure for the immediate over the ultimate. You know, five minutes pleasure for broken hearts, for lifelong regrets, for broken trust, for spoilt testimonies. And I know that teenagers, because I was one once, I know it's hard to believe and it was a long time ago, are challenged to compromise. You're challenged to compromise your integrity. I'm not going to look at the teenagers. Challenged to compromise your integrity, your purity, your virginity. You're tempted to compromise everything and the pull is very, very strong. I just say this. Be careful it's not a bowl of stew. Be careful it's not a bowl of stew. You know, God has said what he said 
not because he's a mean old controlling tyrant, but because he knows what's best for you. He knows where real peace, where real joy, where real life is to be found. Why do you think that the enemy is ramming sexual impurity down your throat? Why is he ramming rebellion against authority down your throat? Why is he ramming body beautiful? It's all about how you look. It's all about the external down your throat. Why is it that he's ramming through marketing and advertising, heavy consumerism that leads to a dissatisfaction, that leads to a lust for more? Why is he ramming all that stuff down your throat? Do you think it's because he wants you to have a great time? No. His intention for you is bound up, beaten up, depressed and disappointed. And I can tell you story after story of people that I've spoken to who say, if only I could have the years 15 through 18 again. Because they traded the ultimate for the immediate. They traded their birthright, as it were, for a bowl of stew. It's not easy. But if you will resist now, there is a far greater, better, more godly win down the line. Two more. Parents, what would I say to you? Well, I've already hinted about this whole delayed gratification thing. There is a tide that is flowing rapidly and strongly in the opposite direction to you. How do we teach, how do we prepare our children for this? How how do we bless, bless them lavishly? How do we provide every opportunity on one hand and which, which parent wouldn't want to do that without feeding this entitlement mentality that seems to be suffocating them? My brother used to say, you know, if I'm pointing one finger at you, I've got three pointing back at me and four if I've got a curly thumb. So what I'm, I'm not giving you all the answer. I'm telling you this is the reality. This is what we are faced with right now as parents. How do we teach our children then about selflessness as opposed to selfishness? How do we teach them the benefits of giving and of serving, the very things that Jesus emphasized? How do we teach them about delayed gratification other than my cookies one? I should try that this afternoon. That's fun. How do we teach them about sacrifice? How do we teach them about planning ahead? If only you will save up the next two months pocket money, you can buy that rugby shirt. But I want it now but the shop's not open. Hooray! How do we teach our kids that? Let me, let me phrase it like this. Where, where does life pursuing the immediate end up? What about life pursuing the ultimate? Which is the real life? What, is, what are the inevitable consequences of pursuing the immediate? I don't know. I think we've got a whole generation doing it. Look at divorce rates. Look at the, the, the rate of debt. Look at how much people owe. Look at how many people are under the stranglehold of a broken financial mess. That, surely that is the consequence of the now, now, now. I deserve it. Me, selfish, entitled mindset. That the world is trying to squeeze us in to this box. Where does the, imme- the pursuit of the immediate end up? But flip that in the positive. Where does the pursuit of the ultimate end up. And how do we teach that to our kids? So, with the one finger that I do have pointing at you, and and the four back at me, 
What, what are we teaching our kids? Because the danger is with the very best of intentions, because we all want to bless, we all want opportunities, we all want to lavish everything we can in our children's direction. With our very best intentions, we could be playing right in to the enemy's hands. So a thought for you parents this morning. How do we teach resist now to win later? Okay, let's pull it in everybody now. Last one. Hebrews 10, verse 35 through 38. He says, do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he has promised. Verse 38 says, And my righteous ones will live by faith, but I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. Different translations say, I will take no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back or draws back or turns back. And every time we give in, that's what we're doing. We're saying, Lord, I don't trust you. Lord, I don't need you. Lord, I can go after this and I can have it now. I can go after the immediate at the expense of the ultimate. And if we look through there, in, in the middle of verse 36, it says, then you will receive all that he's promised. Who wants to receive all that he's promised? Right, I do. But there's a then. And the then is patient endurance. It's continuing. It's continue to do God's will. But the reward is a receiving of all that he's promised. Let me put it like this. The faith walk is not a quick fix scheme. It's not instant gratifications. Let's pray. God, God's good. Amen. Everything's solved. That, that's not how the faith walk walks. If it was, if we could have everything now, we wouldn't need faith, would we? So, with that in mind, can I resist the urge to give up when I'm trusting in God? Think about Abraham. Think about Sarah. Think about Ishmael and Isaac. Can I resist the urge to give up, to bail out, to let go? Can I be patient? Can I stand in faith? Can I try not to force it by trying to do things my own way? Can I trust the promises? So I receive an Isaac and not an Ishmael. Can I hang in there? Can I trust the word? Can I trust that God is at work? Can I trust his timing? Can I trust his way? Anyone else notice that God's timing and yours differ a little bit? His tends to be on the slower side slightly. Anyone else notice that apart from me? Can we trust that God's timing is best, that God's way is best? Can I recognize that there is a sowing season and a harvest season? Sowing time and harvest time. Can I recognize that the walk of faith is a marathon and not a sprint? That it's patient endurance and not quick fists. Hebrews 6 verse 12 says, Faith with patience inherits the promises. Faith with patience inherits the promises. That's what takes the land. That's what wins the race. That's what achieves the breakthrough. That's what overcomes the world. So, 
Let's wrap this up. A couple of quick challenge questions for you. Before I do, a quick self-test. Don't answer these. Are you patient or petulant? Are you short-term or long-term? Are you urgent or important? Are you an overreactor? Are you an exploder? Are you the sort of person that leaps without looking, speaks without thinking? Are you an impulse buyer? No, surely not. Are you a spender or a saver? Are you spirit or flesh? Are you feelings or faith? Can you delay gratification? Are you teaching your children to delay gratification? Because if we can resist now, if we can resist that black gold, if we can resist that snare that the enemy's thrown right in front of us that was probably the same snare as yesterday and we fell into it yesterday and oh, it hurt. And there it is again, but you know, it's the firestorm, everything inside of me says, go jump. Can I resist now? Can I do it God's way for a far better, far bigger kingdom win down the line? I leave you with two challenge questions. What I'd like to invite you to do this morning is just to take these two to the Lord. First question is, I've heard all these words that Jamie has shouted at me for 40 minutes. How, how do I apply this to me? What is, what is God saying to me this morning? What is the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear? There may be a little tugging going on on your heartstrings, a slightly uncomfortable feeling. It's not condemnation. It's a gentle nudge, a God prod, dare I say, just pushing you in a certain direction. What one thing, what one thing is the Lord calling from you in response to this message? If I will resist now, there's a bigger win later. And the second challenge is for me as well, how on earth do I apply this? How on earth do I teach this principle to my children? Because if we continue to bring our children up in the way the world is taking them right now, it is going to be ugly. It really is. How do I teach that biblical sacrifice and service, the ability to delay gratification in this instant world to my children? I invite you to take those to the Lord this morning as we worship. Let's pray. Very simple prayer this morning. Go something like this. Oh, that I would go after the ultimate not the immediate. That I'd go after the spirit and not the flesh. The eternal and not the temporal. Lord, would you train me to be patient and godly and mature rather than reactive, easy, quick, quick fix, pain medicating. Lord, would you teach me to resist now that I might win later. Amen.